Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. You're sounding especially resonant today. It's lovely. Yeah. (laughs) I just ate a cookie. Does that make one more resonant? Uh, Maybe thickens the old saliva a little. (laughs) Um, I'm all right. I've had a bad day, actually, but I'm I'm okay. It's just a bad writing day. And there's nothing more demoralizing than trying to write sentences and them not happen. (laughs) I did worry a little bit when you tweeted about tips for avoiding existential despair. It's like, <laughs> oh dear, I'll have to talk to her about this. It's been one of those days. Aww. Yeah, it's fine. I just, the numbers going up again, it's just all freaking me out a little bit if I'm being completely honest, but I don't want to be a Debbie Downer because that's no fun. Um, <laughs> no. So tell me about how you are. Well, I think I'm better than you. I can maybe safely say because I'm going to Paris tomorrow. Yeah, that's the when best we're news recording. ever. Yeah. By the time the show is broadcast, I will have been to Paris. But I really cannot wait to eat delicious pastries. And I'm going to go to the Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition at the Pompidou. I have not been to any non-English language speaking countries for like two and a half years now. And I'm just really looking forward to being in a different culture and losing myself. Well, maybe not losing myself, but just being in a different place that feels not like home. I think that's so important. Yeah, it's going to be great. You're going to have a fabulous time. Please bring me back something French. I will try to do that. I was going to say it's harder now we don't live in the same city otherwise I'd demand a pan au chocolat but you know (laughs) post me a pan au chocolat from Oxford yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, but on to the show today we are very excited to welcome the author Natasha Brown whose slim first novel Assembly follows a black British woman preparing for a garden party at her boyfriend's family estate This narrator has said and done all the right things. She went to a good university, has a cushy job in finance, owns a flat, and yet she lives in a country that will never fully accept her, and she begins to question the cost of her complicity. In honor of Assembly, we're widening out our discussion today to talk about books that feature and often critique characters climbing proverbial ladders from the workplace to the class hierarchy. Novels like Vanity Fair and American Psycho have asked what it means when we buy into the societal stories that we are told and strive for publicly approved success. And we'll be digging into that trope today and maybe our own need for achievement. Maybe. (laughs) But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Natasha Octavia? Sure thing. Natasha Brown has spent a decade working in financial services after studying maths at Cambridge University. She developed Assembly after receiving a 2019 London Writers Award in the Literary Fiction category. Also, quick reminder that we're on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content every month, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes, as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Natasha, a more general discussion of climbing the ladder in literature, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So stay put, and you might even get a big raise in promotion from me and Octavia (laughs) on Literary Friction. That wasn't even a pun. That was really lazy.
Natasha Brown, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Assembly. Do you mind setting it up for us? Uh, Sure. So in Assembly, it's about a woman who travels to a garden party. And this is sort of the night before when she's arrived at the house where the party's happening. Absent my phone's glow. The dark is perfect. My eyes are slow to adjust. The quiet here is absolute. I feel unobserved. Though I know what is to come and what's expected of me at tomorrow's party. I understand the function I'm here to perform. There's a promise of enfranchisement and belonging, yes, a narrative peak in the story of my social ascent. Of course, they, the family, even the guests, knew I could not turn down such an invitation. I will be watched. That's the price of admission. They'll want to see my reactions to their abundance. Polite restraint, concealed outrage and a base, desirous hunger beneath. I must play this part of a veneer of new millennial money coolness, serving up savage witticisms alongside the hors d'oeuvres. It's a fictionalisation of who I am, but my engagement transforms the fiction into truth. My thoughts, my ideas, even my identity, can only exist as a response to the party-goers' words and actions, articulated along the perimeter of their form reinforcing both their selfhood and its centrality to mine. How else can they be certain of who they are and what they aren't? Delineation requires a sharp, black outline. Thank you so much. I think that gives a sense of the kind of carefulness of the prose and and the slight detachment of it that belies so much that's going on under the surface, which I want to ask you more about in a bit. But first, I, I just want to ask you about what was the genesis of Assembly? And I'm especially interested to know because it's a it's a very short book. Maybe you call it a novella. I'm not sure if you have a specific word you use for it. But was it always going to be the length that it is as well? Pretty much. I kind of always knew approaching it that I didn't want it to overstay its welcome. And I kind of wanted to make sure that every page, every paragraph, every sentence was really earning its place in this thing I was writing. Um, So I knew I wanted to keep it um, sort of as short and concise as possible and try and pack as much meaning as I could into it. I think it really began with a lot of a lot of nonfiction and wider reading I was doing. I became really fascinated with the question of whether or not language is or can be neutral and the ways in which language is sometimes weaponized um, and used to sort of distort and that broadened out a bit into stories more generally and I think it was something I was deeply interested in and I wanted to find a way to explore a lot of the ideas I was thinking about and writing my own sort of notes around and it seemed to me the best way that I could sort of get these ideas out was to package them in a story that hopefully brought them to life and illuminated sort of some of the questions. As I was reading it, I was thinking actually of Claudia Rankine's Citizen, which then I saw that you you reference it in the notes because it's another work that feels, I don't know, it feels like they're kind of parallel texts in a way because they both Assembly and Citizen kind of talk about 
the topic at hand in a more detached way in places, but they also illustrate with story. And obviously, Citizen Ferankin is, is, I guess, it's in the path category of poetry, and it's also not fiction, it's about her life. But I wonder, were there any other writers whose writing kind of informed your decision to make this style? Like, were there any other, well, the nonfiction writers you were just mentioning, did they help you come up with the style? Mm, yeah, quite quite a bit. I think there was one particular Roland Barthes essay, Mythologies, that really influenced that. sort of... Oh, yeah. I When I first read that, it, it just sort of, it seemed to tie together a lot of the ideas and the questions I had in my mind. And he talks about speech. Um, well, he defines mythologies as appropriated language, where language can be writing or speech or imagery that's then used to sort of naturalize ideas and erase history. And to me, it was such a kind of powerful way of describing, I think, some of the unease I had when I was reading certain things, whether that was fiction or whether that was news, just looking at the way that particular images and ideas seem to be co-opted and what they were suggesting. And he talks in particular about approaches to deconstruct or reveal mythologies. He talks about a meta-myth and the way that a novel can function as a meta-myth, so appropriating the myth itself to kind of reveal how it's operating. And he actually sort of is quite specific about how that would work and says it's better to kind of have a, a shorter image and almost closer to caricature because that makes it easier for a myth to take hold. So it definitely informed my thinking around, I guess, the way the characters are sketched out. Also, there was a um, Bell Hooks essay, which is quoted in the novel Postmodern Blackness. And she really talks about, in that essay, the way that sometimes black identity is sort of reduced to a sort of essentialism and also there's a big focus on concrete gut level experience so pain and fe and feelings and degradation but she argues that that's dehumanizing in its own way and she made the case for sort of a new, new forms of cultural production that marry pop culture and commercial viability with sort of real critical practice and analysis. And, you know, she talks about fragmented works, stories that are non-linear in that essay, and it all just seemed to really invigorate the approach that I was taking with Assembly. I love hearing you speak about language and this approach to language and style. And I wonder when the narrator in this book and the kind of plot, if you will, took shape and did it did it kind of spring from that interest in language did they did they move alongside each other was that a vessel for conveying those ideas or is it more kind of nebulous is it is, I know these things can be hard to talk about with writing sometimes yeah yeah I think I think it definitely was those ideas were what I started with and I wanted to find a story that would let me hook a lot of them onto it and I know that's probably not the right way to approach story and I definitely spent a lot of time in the editing and the structuring it and really thinking about how I wanted it to take shape, trying to really focus on the story and also taking a lot of cues from screenwriting advice, because I think in films, they can often be quite experimental and quite odd, but still emotionally satisfying. So trying to make sure that the character arcs made sense and we were getting payoffs at the right moment in the story so that it still felt like a satisfying read and a satisfying novel. Because I think if someone picks up a book like this, I want to reward the sort of time and energy they put into reading it and not make it frustrating and purely theoretical. 
That makes so much sense because as I was reading, it felt almost like a monologue or I could imagine it staged or on a, a radio play or something. So there is something cinematic, but also performative, I think, about it. In a, I don't know, does that ring true to you? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, there's the Lehman trilogy, which I was lucky enough to see when it was on. And I think that originally was a radio play, but it was staged as a play in what's it, Leicester Square, I guess. And there they had just three actors who took on all the roles. So they were sometimes narrating, they were sometimes in different characters. And the voice just sort of felt very, it kind of floated across them. They, they sort of took them on and then switched. And I found that style just really helpful as a way of thinking about how can you play with voice and perspective and how do you I felt like with a novel like this particularly when the form changes so much there's a lot going on the narrator's voice really had to kind of grip the reader and hopefully if her voice doesn't work if we don't believe her I don't think the novel could work and I don't think she could carry this story. I want to ask you a little bit more about the narrator why did you settle on her what interests you about her Tell us a little bit about your relationship with the narrator as a writer. Mm. So she kind of came to it last. I was thinking about the settings and the other characters and what their stories would be and what they wanted and how they would sort of all intersect. Initially, when I was writing it, the, the time period was a bit more loose. And then I tightened it down to just sort of this couple of days. But I really focused on them because I deliberately wanted the narrator to be the person who just fit in the space that they left behind. I wanted that to kind of, um, that sort of feeling of constraint and responding to other people's sort of wills and presence to be her defining characteristic. So it, it did feel like almost solving a puzzle, figuring out the sort of person who would fit in between. But at the same time, something that was so key to me right from the beginning was I didn't want to say too much about her because I felt, for me, one thing I really wanted to explore was black subjectivity. So making the narrator the subject who directs our gaze. And I really look at her character arc throughout the novel as going from sort of an object who the story's happening to an active narrator by the end. So even if she hasn't sort of taken control of her circumstances in perhaps a more traditional way, she's learned how to narrate and direct the viewer's gaze. So I tried to keep her very empty, deliberately lean into her being an absence so that the reader can sort of slip into her shoes and look out at the world the way she's narrating it. I was so interested that she works in a kind of corporate company. We don't find out too much about where she works, but you also work in financial services. And I wonder what about that kind of culture interested you in terms of this character? I mean, I think a lot of what she does is reflect upon her experience of basically climbing the ladder and taking all the right boxes and progressing within this corporate environment and still being in a place where she's not accepted and will never be accepted in, in contemporary Britain by the people who basically have power and who run the company. Yeah, I think in some ways it was really just a plot device. I needed some vacation for her that could put her in a situation where she'd be interacting with the sorts of people who would throw this party. And there aren't a lot of careers, really. Well, I mean, there's a few, but there aren't a lot of sectors where someone like the narrator could make that kind of a leap. Far more careers have a lot of um, barriers in place that there's no sort of way to work hard and perform your way into those sectors. So even if in her job there's something of a glass ceiling, there is at least opportunity for her to progress somewhat. 
I think it's interesting that her story could only really happen now. You know, 50 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, it simply wouldn't be possible for someone like her to do this sort of work. And I think economy is changing and the tertiary and quaternary sectors are a much bigger part of our economy. And it just doesn't make sense now for companies to exclude people like her because, frankly, they can get cheaper labour, which is just as good as the other labour in the company. And I felt it was really interesting to write a character who could only exist as a result of this economic shift, I guess. Yeah, it's a super interesting point. And I feel like the the family who's hosting the party, so it's her white boyfriend who comes from a very kind of wealthy family and, and moneyed in a traditional old school kind of way, which obviously provides this this contrast to your protagonist. But also I felt in the scenes when we're at the party and we meet his family, your observations about how those kind of people operate and the way that they speak to one another and the way that they move through the world are so astute and very carefully chosen. And I wanted to know more about writing those scenes, whether you kind of wrote outwards and then pulled it back or did you always know it was going to be super tight? Mm, Well, thank you. I think I wrote a lot of background stuff, anything, particularly the more characters in the scene, it felt the more background stuff I wrote. But I would typically approach a scene writing from the various characters' perspectives in the scene, so just sort of third person but aligning with them and try and get into their voice, get into what they're saying and have a lot more of the conversation sort of sketched out. Because for me, it felt like that was the best way. I really wanted the dialogue and all aspects of the story really to feel real because in a lot of ways this book is almost trying to make the case that this woman it does exist there are people like her in the world so a sort of verisimilitude I guess was really important to me so what I tried to do was write in their voices write it from their perspective and then just kind of get the absolute right sentence out from you know everything I'd written that really kind of captured their point of view and just gave a flavor of how that aspect of the conversation had worked and I felt as well with her when she's in situations where she's much more comfortable there's a lot more reported speech whereas when she's with these characters who are you know have a different way of speaking and intimidate her a bit more there's much more um, direct speech where they're sort of taking control and their voice is much clearer and I wanted to play around with that a lot to kind of contrast the house with the work environment and other situations. Yeah that makes a lot of sense. I want to get back to what you were saying about language and how language operates and thinking about that in the context of this narrator's experience in particular. You have a really wonderful passage where she says something like, you know, the only language that's kind of available to me that these people will listen to is their own language reflected back at them, you know, the language of their institutions. And I really felt that in this book, that she was she's she's kind of trapped because she's she's expected to assimilate and kind of mirror the society she lives in and that's one of the her dilemmas in the book and i wonder if if that's one of the things that you were thinking about kind of writing this novel to show how that that creates a kind of impossible bind if you will that this black narrator is is kind of trapped within these systems that kind of saying to her oh you know act like we act, say what we say, and you'll succeed. And also feeling the emptiness of that success and and the kind of false promise of that success in a way. Mm, Yeah, I think that was something I thought about a lot. And I think the way it is in the novel, 
I definitely tried to set it up as something as of a metaphor for the book itself because one thing I I sort of noticed was this idea of a young black woman that identity when we put it on a book it's almost become a genre at this point it sets up conventions that we expect the book will fulfill you know we can kind of guess the rough storyline what the themes will be what the arc of the narrator will be and you know who the characters are and I felt that was fascinating this conflation of identity and genre and narrative expectation but of course as someone who's never published you know so much as a short story before if I were to publish something it did have to look like that genre because of my identity so I certainly felt I was writing within that genre but also trying to by stripping so much back sort of reveal its conventions hopefully a little bit more so I looked at that that sort of assembly scene and when she kind of keeps returning to that idea as talking about the book itself really Fascinating. And so the title, because my next question was going to be about the title, because as you say, the assembly scene is a beat that kind of pulses throughout it. And I thought in some ways it's very relatable, the idea of kind of thinking of yourself as what would you say to the school children that you were once, you know, like anyone who went to school knows what it's like to have an old school member visit an assembly and talk about their adult life. I mean, I think that's quite a relatable setup, but it's really interesting to see it in this context of does this narrator want to continue the legacy of this kind of upwardly mobile need, as Carrie was saying before, to assimilate, or does she want to break the chain? Yeah, the title was that kind of you wanted to to put the frame around that more than around anything else. It, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the title tying up with the school assembly was somewhat accidental for me the kind of core metaphor well not really accidental but I guess an added bonus of the title because the core metaphor for me was them constructing the marquee in the garden for the party and sort of the violence of that act um, you know what it's doing to the environment that they're in but it's also leading to something very beautiful that's going to bring all of these people together so that sort of pivotal scene and for me that's kind of really the moment where the narrator sort of set on her final, you know, she makes the big decision to leave the garden. That was kind of what I was thinking about, that act of construction. I didn't think of that. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> no, me neither. Me neither. You're smarter than we are. Um, <laughs> it was a bit too um, hidden. <laughs> and I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the garden party. Why, why a garden party? What does this represent for you? Well, I think Catherine Mansfield's The Garden Party was um, definitely an influence in particularly the boyfriend's arc. And that section of the book, the subtitle kind of nods to it a bit, calling it Garden Party. And I think it's just something of a trope in English literature. And I felt that having this big event that we're building up to gave the whole narrative some momentum and something we're sort of moving towards and looking forward to seeing. So... I kind of used it in that sense, I guess. Yeah, it's very effective. And it does, it definitely made me think of a lot of sort of, well, it made me think a bit of Bride's Head Revisited, all those kinds of books from from mm. that period as well. I wanted to ask you about your background studying maths, because when you were describing putting the book together a little while ago, and you said it was a bit like solving a puzzle, I wondered if you found parallels between the way you approach maths and the way you approach writing. And I also wanted to know when you started writing, is it something that you've always done or did it come to you kind of later on? 
I think definitely studying maths, I think, has been helpful in terms of learning how, how to write and how to approach, perhaps less so on the, on the sentence level and more on just how do you approach writing a novel, because I think a big part of maths is looking at looking for patterns and looking for something in, that you recognise and applying it to a slightly different area. Um, and I think that was definitely something I did. I read a lot of books and tried to figure out how they work, really, and try and identify when a particular technique is used, when a particular strategy or approach is used, what kind of an effect that creates in me as the reader. And it was really interesting to revisit a lot of books I'd enjoyed just as a reader, just kind of greedily consuming them and to read them much more slowly and try and sort of piece piece apart how actually they created the impact on me and the effect in me that they did. In terms of starting to write, so I've always read and absolutely loved reading, but at school I couldn't stand English language. I only kept up English literature to A-level. And yeah, I didn't really think I was especially interested in, in writing at that point in my life. It was really in 2019 I took my first writing class because I felt like I wanted to find a way of expressing some of these ideas about language that I was thinking about. And in terms of, of the language in the book, it's very detached and we do get a sense of a subjectivity that arrives at the end, but the language remains, I think, very detached and controlled throughout. And I was just wondering, this is your first book, it's your debut novel. I think that style is so, it makes so much sense in terms of the ideas that this book is exploring and the narrator. And maybe this is an impossible question to ask, but if you went to go write the next thing do you think of that as your style more generally or do you think of that as a style that you arrived at to write this particular book mm -hmm. I really think it was part of the puzzle of figuring out how to create this narrator's character I feel like it's really her voice it's not how I kind of it's certainly when I read it it doesn't read as how I think if you know what mm. I mean and I definitely felt like I had to get into a frame of mind and sort of not just write it once, but rework it and rework it to try and get it to sound like this and have this effect. What feels a lot more natural to me was kind of the background writing I was doing when it's in the third person and I just kind of align with characters. That feels a lot closer to, I think, how I think of uh, my style of writing. That's so fascinating. I can't wait to see what you write next. And I want to ask you about these moments of formal experimentation really in the book this feels it almost feels like a modernist novel in some ways I was thinking of I've seen it compared to Mrs. Dalloway and I I see that in the structure of course over the a very confined space of time but also in terms of the way it's playing with language and we we get footnotes and lists and the text breaks down sometimes some things are only paragraphs or so was that always part of this novel that you were writing and were there experiments that you tried that you ended up not keeping you know were, was there always going to be footnotes and lists did you just choose those when it felt right what how did you arrive at that kind of mixture of of how the prose is on the page mm, I think I kind of knowing I wanted to keep it short changing form seemed like the best way to sort of achieve that because 
if I wanted to slow down at, at times and at times you know it's got proper paragraphs and everything it's more like standard prose but at other times I want to kind of get through a lot of things quickly but without sort of necessarily adding I guess the the expected sort of narrative around just particular ideas it felt to me like I would have to there would be some switches that felt jarring so I kind of knew going into it that I was probably going to have to try and do this I needed to find a way that would make it work and would also make sense for the character so I definitely think that moment when she leaves the garden that's the point when you kind of get the more playful changes in form when you know she has footnotes and she, she figures that sort of thing because she is taking over the narrative and sort of narrating it more in her style and you know this is the way that she thinks so she presents it that way whereas the earlier passages where we're kind of more looking at her I wanted to write those in a much more almost familiar style as in this is a story of uh, millennial disenfranchisement how do we imagine that that would be written so I was sort of nodding more to that kind of style but then at points like when we arrive at the house um, I think that's when the prose gets a bit more traditional and that was because I kind of wanted this shift that kind of reflected the shift in location it really felt to me that form was like anything like sentence length or vocabulary just something I could alter to help create the effect of what the character was going through and where the character was in the narrative and I think as well maybe this is a result of coming to writing late these rules didn't feel like I I didn't feel any particular rule about what a novel had to be so I just sort of did it in a way that would hopefully get the story across. I think that's such an important point actually that you can kind of if you come to something free from those directives, you can arrive at a, a finished product that's a lot more original, actually. I also was interested because that's towards the end. And I suppose, you know, there's a there's a very important decision that the character makes, which I'm not going to give away. Um, I think it's important for readers to come to that on their own. But there's something shot through the story about the power of choice and what constitutes a choice we think of a choice as being something that is always active in a way that we recognize as active but actually there are other ways of choosing a direction for yourself that maybe are less strident and it feels like once she kind of comes into her decision her thinking gets liberated in in a way and I feel like you know the bell hooks quote that you mentioned earlier like when we're when we're drawn into her psyche in that moment she kind of talks to herself which I really enjoyed because as we've talked about it's quite detached up until that point and then there's this real power in hearing her internal voice and I felt so I felt very moved for her in that moment but I, I wonder why you wanted to think about choice in this way like what drew you to that conundrum I think, you know, I get a lot of questions about why the narrator doesn't just quit her job and, you know, why why doesn't she, you know, or it's always a question about why doesn't she do this or why doesn't she do that? And I think a lot of the time people like her are presented with false choices because quitting her job doesn't solve sort of most of the things that she's thinking about. I think it's a bit of a false choice just sort of presented to almost criticize her I think the person that she is really has grown out of 
you know, the rhetoric, Clinton era, Blair era, about personal responsibility and the demonising of black people in particular for sort of being drains on the state and not doing enough. And I think, you know, certainly in my life, that was rhetoric I would hear regularly at school. You'd see it in the newspapers. There was a very clear demonisation of people for not sort of taking enough personal responsibility. And I, I see the narrator as really the sort of person who grows out of having their life um, criticised in such a way from so young. She will solve any problem and work hard enough to solve any problem. But it's not really a solution, is it? Because then people ask, tell her, why, well, why don't you do this? Or they criticise her for being some sort of capitalist, complicit, neoliberal, I don't know. It just seems like there isn't really anything she can do that isn't criticised. And I really wanted to question what it means to have a choice when, and kind of coming back again to the myths of colonialism, because of the way she's been constructed and the way that her identity is weaponised against her. She never really does have a choice because no matter what, it's always going to be, or at least for now, it's very profitable to criticise women like her, no matter what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also within that, you're, well, you certainly made me think about the question of legacy. And one of the the things that weighs on her kind of decision making is what will she leave in her wake generally as a human being in the world? And she has a sister who she watches kind of being trapped into the same lane that she's been in. And I wonder if if you feel that conversations about kind of the the legacy we leave behind, the imprint we leave behind, are starting to change or whether you feel we're still banging our heads against the same brick walls? Yeah, I don't, I, I just almost wonder if we're never really quite talking about the right things. And I think there's this, I think even in the fact that a woman like the narrator is so polarising and is, sort of villainized in some spheres says a lot about where we are and how capable we are about talking about these things in a dispassionate way so yeah I think I think if anything sort of in recent weeks and months I've become a bit more pessimistic uh, than I perhaps was when I wrote it have you found people have been responding to her your protagonist in a way that surprised you I think it's been amazing to see so much recognition, particularly sort of speaking to readers at book clubs, um, at events. It's just been fantastic for people to say, I know this woman mm. <laughs> and that they're happy to see her in fiction. I think to me that that's just the kind of best, best part of it. I think it's sort of been interesting in talking to journalists. There's usually a lot of quite strong criticism of the character and, um, you know, almost calling her irresponsible. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've had that. And I've, you know, had journalists say it's um, it's unusual for a black woman to own a home, these sorts of um, ideas. And I think it's really, it's sort of, I wonder if kind of the, the journalism class is sort of out of step with, um, you know, everyday people in a sense. Um, I think that's I, I think a that's very fair where... thing to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that, I don't know if I was, I was surprised at how forthright it was, but I guess it was something I'd kind of wondered, but it's just, I think 
talking to readers is always the best, the best part of it. The narrator at one point observes that it's so difficult to examine the legacy of colonialism when the basic facts of its construction, this is a quote from her, are disputed in the minds of its beneficiaries. And I was thinking about that when you were just, you were speaking just now about how difficult it is to even discuss these things. And I wonder how hopeful you are about literature as a means of maybe changing people's minds about these things or helping them think through these ideas in different ways. Yeah, I think, I really think absolutely. I, I know not everyone agrees that, that literature can engender empathy, but I certainly think anytime I'm using language, there's an opportunity for understanding and I've sort of found the conversations when I was writing it, I always hoped it would act as one half of a conversation. And a lot of the conversations I've had since writing it have just been full of understanding and full of, you know, bridge building and and seeing things through the narrator's perspective. And I think that's, I think it's something special that literature can do. And it's really just sort of shifting from reader to writer for this it's been really interesting to kind of view it from that side and and really rewarding well on that positive (laughs) note (laughs) Natasha Brown thank you so much for coming and talking to us today the novella the novel the piece of writing (laughs) is called assembly um it's it's out in bookshops now and I would really recommend that you pick it up thank you This episode is sponsored by Picador. Regular listeners will remember that our guest for the show in January this year was Raven Leilani, author of one of the most talked about novels of the year, Luster. Since that episode was broadcast, Luster has become a Sunday Times bestseller, the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize 2021, and a long listee for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And we wanted to take the opportunity to recommend this glorious novel to anyone who has yet to read it. Luster is the story of Edie, a young black woman working in a dead-end admin job, sleeping with all the wrong men and failing at the only thing that meant anything to her, painting. Then she meets Eric, a white middle-aged man with a suburban house, a wife who has sort of agreed to an open marriage, and an adopted black daughter who doesn't have a single person in her life who can show her how to do her hair. As if navigating the shifting landscape of sexual and racial politics as a young black woman wasn't enough, Edie suddenly finds herself falling headfirst into Eric's family. Zadie Smith called Luster brutal and brilliant, and Candice Carty-Williams called it the most delicious novel I've read. Razor sharp and surprisingly tender, Luster by Raven Leilani is a painfully funny debut about what it means to be young now. Luster is currently out in hardback and publishes in paperback in January 2022. 
available from your local independent bookshop. And I can give it a big thumbs up. Me too. So we are back, Carrie and Octavia, to talk about this month's theme, which is climbing the ladder. I'm excited to talk about this. There are lots of novels that show characters climbing proverbial ladders, aren't there? From, I was thinking of Patrick Bateman, for instance, climbing the ladder in the workplace and eventually murdering people as well. And <laughs> <laughs> that's in the novel American Psycho. Um, or there's there's Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby, you know, climbing the ladder to to kind of amass a lot of wealth and this giant mansion so that he can eventually meet Daisy or Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair, the kind of archetypal social climber. And and all of these characters, I think, are are fascinating to us and these stories, too. So why do you think we like to read about climbing the ladder? I think in some ways it's one of the most relatable scripts there is, regardless of what time period the story is set in, just because there's always been a ladder to climb. Social hierarchy is a trap that has always existed and human beings seem totally and utterly obsessed with it, actually, and obsessed with maintaining it. And of course, if you if you're thinking about storytelling, it's a great setup because you have quite a kind of solid structure which you can then subvert if you want to be on the side of the, the disruptor of social hierarchy, or you can look at the reasons that people maintain the social hierarchy. Like you can have characters like the relentless Mrs. Bennett in, in Jane Austen, who's kind of invested in the ability of her daughters to marry well I'm quote marking my fingers like crazy here <laughs> but you know that's a that's a kind of setup that we can meet again and again in different contexts and different times and it still makes sense the parent who wants their child to have a better life than they had or the person who desperately wants to change their social circumstances and looks to a job to fulfill that need rather than a marriage but it's it's the same thing so i think it's kind of an eternal setup and i i long for the day when that's not true yeah <laughs> but i i think for the moment it stands you know it does stand yeah and it's it's a good story for that reason isn't it like there's there's often an outsider who has to climb the ladder or is trying to climb the ladder there that which means that there's a kind of inside world that they're trying to break into and that always gripped in that tension and plot and characters and all of those things um and also the opportunity to critique the system I think that's the thing that I look for the most in these kinds of stories like how can we how I want authors to show me either a kind of sadistic parody of the circumstance so that we can all see how terribly bankrupt it is <laughs> or to show me a, a, a way to break it down, you know? Yeah, totally. And and I think so many of the best novels that feature somebody climbing the ladder are a critique and you can do that in different ways. I mean, I was thinking of the Neapolitan novels and so much of that is about Lenu trying to escape her upbringing, marries well into a fancy family, Florentine family, runs with a different crowd, starts to, to write literature. But it's kind of about how she can't escape Naples, and nor should she try to, really, I think is, is part of the point. And Leela, obviously, she's a very unreliable narrator, but Leela kind of represents someone who's much more connected and unashamed of her roots and where she's from. 
some of the the characters I mentioned are these kind of antiheroes like Becky Sharp in, in Vanity Fair or Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, or even I was thinking Thomas Cromwell in, in Wolf Hall, you know, a historical figure, but really it's conniving, scheming people who are there to climb the ladder at all costs. But it's kind of fun to watch them do that, but that can also be a real critique of the system. You know, somebody who who sees through it and and sees the workings beneath it and, and games it for their own good, but at the expense of others, right? Definitely. I think also it brings in something that we talked about with um, Patrick DeWitt all that time ago, which is that there is a fascination for the world of wealth and power. That is something that we like to read about. I mean, why is The Secret History so many people's favourite comfort novel? And so I think that that these kinds of stories that offer critique, but they also offer a window into these worlds of power and influence, which is something that a lot of us crave from time to time, problematic totally. as that might may be. <laughs> yeah, that comes up over and over on the show, isn't it? You know, it, it is so many, so many stories are about that. And maybe that gets into my next question, which is we've been talking about a critique, but actually, you know, why does the latter exist in the first place? Why do we have things that we think as achievements or social markers, do you think books enforce as much as they critique the kind of social norms and ladders that need to be climbed? I was thinking of romance novels and Jane Austen, and they always end in marriage. And, you know, of course, that then becomes a social norm that we aspire to, partially because it's reinforced in in the stories that we tell over and over in our culture, doesn't it? Totally. And I think um, it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to novels that offer different systems of fulfillment and exploration. Like I think the question of what is a successful person is is a very interesting one in the context of these kinds of books, because a lot of the time, if you say, oh, he's a successful person or she's a successful person, the assumption is that they have amassed some wealth, they have a job that is recognized as being um, worth having or desirable, they own property, they have a marriage, they have maybe a family, whatever these markers are. And actually, like Andrea Lawler's book, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, for example, or Still Life by Sarah Winman, these are some books that offer a completely queered perspective about what it means to be a successful person, where the definition is just based on a completely different metric. Like, have you found fulfillment? Have you found your own version of happiness? Have you found sexual pleasure? Have you found community? And I think that I long for a world where those are the markers of success that we most admire and whether people have wealth or status are completely incidental. I mean, they, they're not things I think should be denigrated necessarily either, but it's more like, cool, that's like the least interesting thing about you. The most interesting interesting thing about you is have you found what makes you tick and can you share it with me? Yeah, and it's so much easier said than done, isn't it? You know, we're so, we're so stuck in these in these patterns and these ideas. Um, but you're right that that literature, you know, as much as it enforces, it, it also offers different paths and and can show the emptiness of the, those kind of traditional markers of success. So, Octavia, to get a little bit more personal, what hey. is your <laughs> what is your relationship with climbing the ladder? Do you feel pressure from society to be successful in a particular way? And do you look to books to think through that pressure and these different metrics of success? 
You know, I found this, actually, this is quite a hard question to answer because what I really want to say is, no, I don't feel pressures. I'm so enlightened that I've let it all go and I just act purely for myself and whatever. But it wouldn't be true. Of course, I feel pressure from society. And I think um, it's taken me quite a long time to unpick from the most negative effects of that and for me that involved leaving academia like that was just not the right setup for me at all because it is so much a gold star system and when you're in a gold star system and you're someone who's susceptible to to feeling that that's necessary to prove your worth to the world it's I mean it's a pit you're just going to never climb back out of so I think I feel less pressure than I used to and I feel lucky to come at some of the other social pressures from a more queer perspective which which means they don't exert quite as much kind of weight on me I suppose than than I see on some of my friends you know about things like marriage and and children and, and things like that and I think you know, yes, I look to books to think through that pressure, definitely. Also, just because books are a chance to see other ways of living and other choices that people can make, whether that's memoir and nonfiction or novels that reimagine the ways that human beings can come together and build communities. So what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not liberated at all. I feel I feel <laughs> immense pressure to achieve in a way that others will recognize and reward. I mean, it's a ter- it's a terrible thing about me that I wish didn't weigh on me so much, but I really feel it. And I like to feel like a successful person and I strive for it in all aspects of my life and I think I think it's difficult. And for that reason I think I really do look to literature to to maybe think about these things and beyond these things and different ways of of thinking about them and I actually take great comfort in art, which is about people who choose to opt out of the system or whose lives are falling apart. It's something that really stresses me out because it's kind of my fear of failure is very great. And so if I'm reading a novel where somebody's just failing, it can be hard. But I think those novels are often about what that experience of failure is like and and how you come out of it. And I, I was also thinking of reading this is a little bit different, but My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshfeg. And I felt very freed by that novel because it was about just opting out and doing what you want and sleeping for a year, <laughs> which is not something I want to do. But it's like it it felt so like deliciously transgressive to read about somebody doing it, you know? It's so interesting because I didn't find it transgressive in that way for those reasons, but that I related to it quite differently. But I think also it's interesting the way you use the word failure, because I think there's a way of totally recontextualizing what failure means, right? Like, what if failure is actually about neglecting your community or your spirit rather than not getting a promotion or not earning a certain amount of money and that kind of thing like I I want to read more books that are asking those questions of which there are many you know like the boom of of books about the problem with work how to do nothing all of those things about the attention economy like I'm really pleased that those are are in circulation now and in a greater number Mm. okay so what is your recommendation on the theme climbing the ladder Mine is a real classic of the genre, The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith, which is just an exquisite exploration of the toxic concept of making it. And if you haven't read it, really, really do. The protagonist, Tom Ripley, 
is a con artist struggling to stay afloat in NYC who insinuates himself into the life of this very wealthy and also pretty wayward guy, Dickie Greenleaf. And Ripley becomes obsessed with him and eventually kind of steals his personality and Highsmith just takes it to the very hills. And the thing I love about this novel is that it really leans into just the horror, the disgustingness of it all and refuses to deliver a satisfyingly moral ending. And it leaves you feeling so slimy and gross. (laughs) (laughs) So it does just what I want from a book about this kind of thing. Haven't read the book, have seen the movie. Movie is also great. In fact, I would say that's probably one of the best adaptations I can think of, book to film. Maybe I'll rewatch that movie. I haven't seen it in a while. It's great. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Also, very sunny and beautiful people and things like that. Great scenery. Great scenery. What's your recommendation? Mine is Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. I love this novel set in the near future when robots have replaced most human jobs and the children of the wealthy basically are competing for a few coveted spots at elite institutions that will guarantee them a a comfortable position in society. So you can see why climbing the ladder comes in and is very present as an idea. It's not a novel that wears its themes very lightly, but (laughs) (laughs) but it's still brilliant, partially because it's narrated in this in this beautiful voice of the robot herself and the emptiness and the cruelty of the system of achievement at all costs is you really see the emptiness of it through the eyes of this innocent and all too human robot Clara who is bought to be the companion of one girl whose mother is desperate to see her succeed at all costs and we see the cost of that for both Clara and the and the girl so it's a very emotional novel and climbing the ladder is is not all it's cracked up to be yeah, and the, the kind of ingenue AI perspective is a, seems like a perfect window to show that. Very much so. Carrie Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and also our guest this month, Natasha Brown, to give our book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. So mine is a great little number, I guess. I don't really know how to describe it. It's a little nonfiction. It's called Number 9192 Notes on a Parisian Commute by Lauren Elkin. And it's published by Les Fugitives. I don't actually know how to pronounce that properly in French, so I'm just going to butcher it. It's essentially a little love letter to Paris made up of notes that Lauren wrote on her iPhone in the app when she was on her way to and from work in the years 2014 and 2015. And it's just It starts off very gently in this kind of mode that's familiar because if you take notes on your iPhone, you kind of recognize the way of observing the world. But very quickly, it becomes this really intimate kind of love letter, but it's not a love letter 
to the Paris of grand romantic narratives at all. It's actually a description of the Paris of kind of daily drudgery, the internal and the external city, you know, just bus people, observations on her fellow commuters. But then slowly you realize that these observations kind of become revelations about herself because of course the things that we notice say a lot about who we are so it ends up being this quite philosophical reflection on identity and perspective and it also ends up taking in the 2015 terror attacks and their aftermath and also her personal loss her experience of miscarriage and of course these are things that when she started the project she could have had no idea that they were going to happen and the way they show up in the book is just such a reminder of kind of the many things in life that are completely out of our hands, basically, and how we can use the way we train our attention to really hold things, or we can let things slip through our fingers by not noticing. And it carries on the legacy of the French writer Georges Perec, who um, she writes about a bit in the book, who she's teaching about at the time that she's writing these notes. And he was part of the Ulipo group I mentioned in our last show, who actually feel like quite a good thing to mention while we're talking to you, Natasha, because they were mathematicians and poets who came together and wrote really interestingly by using constraints. But anyway, he, he wrote a text called An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris in 1974, where he sat in the square at Saint-Sulpice and he tried to note down everything ordinary that happened. And it was this very exhausting, difficult thing. And that book kind of is an echo in this book of, of Lauren Elkins. But yeah, it's I think it's fab. And also, I used to live in Paris, so I had like a kind of visceral, emotional response to it as well and ended up booking myself some Eurostar tickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm headed there tomorrow, yeah. the day we're recording. So it's a Parisian, uh, maybe I should read it on the train there. Oh my God, you definitely mm. should read it on the train. Definitely. It sounds great. I really like her writing. And it sounds like kind of like very serious, but also kind of a confection of sorts totally you know? and there's bits in it that are so funny I mean really funny you know the kinds of private thoughts you have about your fellow commuters that maybe you wouldn't repeat but it's so comfortable to, it's like very comforting rather to see someone else writing them down because I'm like oh I think those things too or like privately congratulating the woman on her sparkly tights or you know all that kind of stuff so it's it's melding philosophy with very real moments of just observation great Natasha what's your recommendation so mine is actually an Aleppo. Is that how you say it too? Oh I my god! <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> um, so it's the book "Exquisite Cadavers" by yeah. Nina Kandasamy. <laughs> You've made my day. Carry on. <laughs> I love this book, um, and I originally picked it up. Uh, well, I pre-ordered it when I heard an interview with Nina Kandasamy talking about you know, this experiment she was doing to put all of her influences and everything of her that was going into the novel, uh, into this new novel, and how it was a response to, well, she was sort of writing it in response to how her first novel, her debut was received, um, often treated straight, as straight memoir when it was a, you know, a fictional novel. So the book itself is nominally about the bickering couple, Karim and Maya, who live in London, and their story, it, it just sits in kind of the intersection of the page. And it has a really unconventional structure all along the margins running in parallel is an account that's presented as the author's influences, and that's how we begin it. She sort of states that up front in the novel. 
But then what I really loved about it was the interplay of those margins sort of explaining why she's made choices about the characters in the story and the story itself. Um, and I've read it a lot of times and kind of at different times, I'll just read the middle, I'll just read the outside, I'll switch over at different points. It feels really interactive in that sense. But also just the writing, particularly in the, the inner story, it's just beautiful. The story itself is quite simple, but I think her background as a poet really comes across um, in the style. And I think she really, she pushes, I guess, the boundaries of her experiments in the way that the, the sort of margins, I'm explaining this quite poorly, interact with the story. So I loved it. And it also had an epigraph from Nabis Phillips which says the purpose of avant-garde writing for a writer of colour is to prove that you're human. And it definitely feels like an idea that's just explored throughout the novel. I just loved it, really. Yes, such a brilliant, such a brilliant recommendation. Also, that whole thing with reviewers calling her first novel memoir, I mean, it speaks so much to everything that's wrong with how writers of colour, the work of writers of colour is received by a majority white establishment. Mm. I have been meaning to read that forever and I can see how it has so much resonance with your work, Natasha, but also that that review really made me want to read it even more. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I am going to recommend O. William with an exclamation point at the end by Elizabeth Strout, which has just been published on the 21st of October. It's her new novel. I love Elizabeth Strout. I love her novel and stories all of Kittredge, but you know, I've I've loved many of her other books. And so I'm I was going to read this no matter what. But I genuinely think this may be one of her best novels. It's a sort of follow-up to her 2016 novel, My Name is Lucy Barton. And it is once again narrated by Lucy, but this time it's set a little bit later in Lucy's life and it concerns her relationship with her ex-husband, William, with whom she she has a pretty okay relationship with him, but she reconnects with him in a much deeper way years after their divorce for, for a number of reasons. And there's also this mystery at the center of the plot, which propels it forward, but it also features Lucy kind of reflecting on on her life and the decisions that she's made and William as a character and why they were together and why they're apart and the kind of mysteries of other people. And it's the most emotionally intelligent novel. It's obsessed with the choices we make in life, but it also, you know, like all of her writing, just refuses to judge any of its characters. It feels deeply, deeply human. And it's also about grief it's about regrets. And I found reading it intensely moving and and also kind of cathartic. And I actually saw a review in the Sunday Times that I didn't read because it was behind the paywall, but it was talking about her books as a kind of therapy. And I can see that actually there's, there's something kind of therapeutic for me, at least about reading her writing. So it's, it's very poignant without kind of being saccharine. And it feels very truthful if I don't want to be maybe too intense about it, but that was kind of how I felt when I, when I finished reading it. So I, if you, if you like Elizabeth Strout, I think you'll love this. If you don't like her, it's much of the same. And maybe you should avoid, if you haven't yet read (laughs) Elizabeth Strout, I would really recommend reading this. It sounds great. It's one I'm going to save up maybe for Christmas. Feels like a Christmas read. I, I think it could be a Christmas read. I encourage you to do that.
That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Natasha Brown, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction, and you can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Thank you.